listening to Affect Autism, where Affect is the number one tool we use in supporting child development through playful interactions. Welcome listeners. I am so excited today to have these two lovely people from the United Kingdom. Dr. Amy Pearson is a senior lecturer in psychology at the University of Sunderland in the Northeast of England, where she is also an autistic autism researcher. And we also have returning guest, Kieran Rose, who is the autistic self-advocate. He's a published author, speaker, consultant, trainer, researcher, a neurodivergent educator in England, and he's the father of three neurodivergent children. He has spoken with thousands of autistics over the last 20 years, both in a personal and professional context. We have a number of podcasts together, which I'll link to in the blog post at affectautism.com under today's topic. We will be discussing their newly released book called Autistic Masking, Understanding Identity Management, and the role of stigma. Welcome to both of you. Thank you for having us. <laughs> I'm super excited about this new book. I have watched a number of podcasts about the book and interviews with both of you talking about the book. And in our past podcast, Kieran talked about autistic masking. And so I, I want to um, not replicate the podcasts that you've already done. But let's start by giving the listeners who aren't familiar with the book a little bit of background. What was the impetus to starting this book? We published a paper together uh, in 2021, uh, which was about masking, um, because we both had quite a lot of frustrations around the direction that masking research had gone in. Um, we felt that it was it was quite victim blaming. Um, it had been used to kind of uh, describe the way in which nobody had bothered to look for autistic women and girls. It was just, oh, you've been hiding from us all this time. It's all your fault. Um, and there were lots of other kind of misconceptions. And we felt it was quite a superficial narrative as well. So that paper, when it was published, um, it, it made quite a wave, didn't it, Amy? It was quite very impactful. Um so we knew that there was more that we wanted to write about. And obviously when you publish an academic paper, there's a there's a word limit. And we felt quite constrained and we chopped quite heavily. We wrote quite a lot and chopped quite heavily and had to pull it all back. <laughs> we knew that there was a book there, but we had no impetus to write a book because both of us were very busy and um, it was quite daunting. And then a publisher knocked on the door and said, can you, can you publish this in six months? And we very stupidly said yes. <laughs> and then a year and a half later, we had a book. <laughs> it wasn't published in six months at all. Um, but yeah, that was that was that was really kind of the thrust of it, that we had lots and lots of frustrations. There were lots of things we wanted to explore and we felt like there needed to be much more meat on the bones around the kind of the different narratives and bringing in kind of cross field um, understandings of, of masking and seeing how different groups talked about masking as well. All of that was really quite important to it. The book was predominantly kind of focused towards an academic audience um in terms of you know that's because they're the people that dictate and control that narrative and so that's that's really we wanted to make them stop and think about that but with a big but we have tried to make it as accessible as possible because obviously knowing that both of us have a, the privilege of a fairly large platform that isn't just academics um lots of autistic people lots of parents and a combination of those things as well um so there's like a massive glossary in there. There are loads and loads of citations if people want to go on and do further reading. And it's not a book that we wrote with the expectation that people just pick it up and read it from cover to cover in one sitting. Um, although in my earlier days, I probably would have been able to do that. But um, it's it's more of a kind of a reference tool. You can There's a narrative arc in the chapters. We start with a history of autism and then move on to kind of what 
you know what fostering a safe or authentic identity might look like um but also you can dip in and out of chapters as well they're, they're kind of standalone as well so so it's it's a study book it's a book that's that's kind of intended to be studied and not read like a novel um so just for anybody who's coming out that isn't an academic just so that they have that kind of warning in place and don't open it up and just get completely overwhelmed by it because there's there's lots of big words and things in it and 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 lots of big concepts in it as well that actually if you take your time with it and go through it steadily it's actually written in a way that hopefully you will be able to kind of absorb kind of quite naturally there are some ideas in there that i think will be quite meaningful for a lot of people like really help people make sense of their own experiences um and I think like I don't know one of the joys for me in writing it right is that you get to explore all of these things which contribute towards arguably incredibly complex like concept which is masking um but through that we kind of weave all the way through identity and intersectionality and stigma and trauma and so there's there's so much in there to learn about the broader autistic experience as well. Um, it's not a fun book. Um, it's not like a cheery book. It's about something that leads to disproportionate amounts of mental health issues and suicidality within our community. Like it's it's not fun, um, but I think it is meaningful. And that's what I would hope people would really take away from this is like, in addition to helping us understand what masking is, maybe it helps us to think about how we can try and make things a little bit better. Yeah, I can imagine. And Amy, I'm curious as a later diagnosed autistic woman, um, can you describe what masking is for listeners? So I'm, I'm gonna be really cheeky and use our definition. Um, so I think Kieran and I would describe masking as a, a conscious or unconscious suppression or projection um, of aspects of self and identity and the use of kind of non-native social strategies. Um, so to kind of really break that down, what we mean is that masking can be something we consciously think about doing, or it might be something that we've kind of internalized over a long period of time. So maybe you start doing it because it makes you feel safer or helps you to avoid victimization or negative social judgments. And then over time, it just becomes something you don't really have to think about that you don't realize that you're doing. But I think a lot of the literature so far has really addressed the idea that masking is suppressive, which is something we, we talked about in the conceptual paper that we wrote. Um, and actually over the past couple of years, I think there's been much more of a shift towards recognizing, particularly driven by Kieran's um, theorizing on projecting acceptability, that masking is really about sometimes giving people what they expect and giving people what we think they want to see. Um, so yeah, that's, that's kind of our definition, but I think one of the, the difficulties of masking is that it's forever shifting. Like our understandings are, are really in the infancy at the moment. And I think it's something that's going to continue to shift over time. Um, so that's our definition now, whether it'll be the same in two years time, like who's to say. <laughs> well, that's what I love about this whole neurodiversity movement is that it's so new in its infancy and we're hearing so many voices and perspectives. And then we're having the clash with autism experts who have that old medical model and and just getting them on board and then some of them being more on board than others and everything is just shifting and it's it's going to be so amazing to watch so it's super exciting and it must feel exciting for you guys to kind of be at the forefront of it and leading some research 
It is. It's it's for me. It's exciting and frustrating in equal measures because there's so much work to do. There's so much change that's needed, and you know, I I I think about this a lot about about the work that we're doing now and how that might be perceived in the future in comparison to how former work is being perceived now. And I would hope that the work that we're doing now in twenty, thirty years' time won't be seen as deeply ableist and won't be seen as enormously problematic in the way that previous research and previous work is being viewed now that's not to say that what we're doing now isn't is the full stop it's the be all and end all as amy said we're, we're it's it's fluid everything's dynamic and evolving and changing and we're really only beginning to understand what being human means still now so that that's changing and evolving right now let alone what being autistic an autistic human means as well so we do have to kind of check ourselves quite a lot of the time and think that what we're talking about constantly are theories, but maybe they're better theories than the ones we had before because they're less stigmatizing and less ableist. Yes. And it, what really jumped out at me when I was hearing about your book and seeing interviews about your book and just thinking about masking in my own life, like how I've always tried to um, project you know, the the image that I thought my teachers wanted or my parents wanted or people want. Um, it really reminded me that I did a master's in personality psychology in the 90s. And my graduate school advisor's area of specialty was impression management. And so although mine focused on a little bit different things, like in the in the questionnaires we constructed, we always had a measure of impression management, which at in that sense was defined as let's see if people are being honest on this test, it, self-deception measures and stuff like that. But when you think of it as a broader topic, and he certainly looked at it as a broader topic as well, it's interesting because the more I've learned about autism and neurodivergent characteristics and questioning my own neurodivergence and things like that, it started making me think about that. And then when your book came out, I was like, oh, okay, wait a second here. Like, there's this idea that everybody in the world sort of manages the way they appear to others. Like think about dating websites, like people show their best side and stuff like that. But autistic masking is a lot deeper than that. It's a lot, it's, it's literally um, could be a difference between life and death and safety and not being safe. Because if you do not mask you will have very, very severe consequences. Do you want to say a little bit about the difference between impression management and and masking? We have a model for this. Um, but effectively, like that, that's something I'd, I'm really interested in personally, is just how we can split the two out. So like how impression management for a kind of a, a transactional and a contextual shift differs to the use of masking, which seems to be more to avoid stigma. Though it does include maybe some of those kind of, you know, wanting to fit in in social situation aspects. Um, so the way in which we kind of split it out is thinking about if you've got general impression management and masking as your kind of two components, that stigma primarily is feeding into like the need to mask. And so when you get to that context dependent part, when you are engaging in impression management, it's about value expression, right? So you kind of think about which parts of yourself do you need to maybe let shine a little more and highlight? And which parts of yourself do you maybe need to soften for that social situation? But all of those things are still authentically you. It's just choosing which bits you're going to kind of let out more in that situation. So it's just more about that multifaceted aspect of yourself and that and switching. 
Whereas the context dependent aspect for masking either involves that suppression or projection of kind of those authentic aspects of you, which then leads to that inauthentic self-expression. I think like, so I've been thinking about this more recently in terms of like what we think about as authentic versus inauthentic. Um, because I think that it's really hard to pick out what's kind of what's authentically you and, and what's a coping strategy and whether that is in an authentic thing. But I think it's how it makes people feel. People feel inauthentic. They don't feel like themselves. Um, and that seems to be the thing that splits it out from general impression management. But it's something I think we both really want to explore as well in future research and see whether we can kind of examine that a little bit more from a, an empirical perspective among autistic people and see what they think about that. It would be really nice to come across a pocket of autistic people that maybe haven't perceived or received the level of kind of pathologization and stigma and that subtle kind of I was thinking when Amy was talking about what what Amy was talking about how that feels and the word that I would describe that is fuzzy in a lot of ways feeling like you're fuzzy in lots and lots of contexts and lots of situations you're not quite in the room you're not quite out of the room there's that kind of discombobulation that that disconnect and and you want to be there but you can't be there and and a lot of that is because of things like impression management but what's feeding into that impression management the the stigma that you've received over the years the the microaggressions the invalidations all of those feeding in so if we could find a pocket of autistic people that haven't managed the unicorns there must be out there somewhere that haven't experienced that it will be interesting to know kind of what that would look like differently i was on um uh doing a talk the other night uh on academy um and somebody was in the chat and was talking about the fact that they grew up on an island where they were very very much accepted um up until about the age of 20 and then they moved to the mainland and lived on the mainland for four years and by the end of that four-year period were on antidepressants were, were were experiencing severe mental health problems and they directly put that down to that change in i feel safe here but i don't feel safe here and that's because of the people around me and how they're perceiving me and how they're treating me so that that those unicorns would be nice so we, we could have a comparison sample because we don't have one at the minute so so if anybody out there wants to be part of that comparison sample and, and does feel that they haven't experienced that kind of that level of disconnect growing up and that they feel absolutely safe and accepted all the way through their childhood and growing up, that would be great because I think we could really utilize that kind of information to get that difference between those two those two spaces. But we're still at that stage where kids are being made to feel like there's something wrong with them and then they learn how to mask the ones who are able to and some are not able to necessarily mask those behaviors, but that's a different kind of masking because then they're internalizing that and they may not be able to control their outer behavior, but they're learning that, you know, something's really wrong with me and all of these horrible things that, you know, affect their mental health and, and everything else going forward. Um, in, in personality psychology, there's this big, you know, person versus situation debate where you have personality traits. Are they genetic? You know, usually they're pretty formed by the age of seven. And then, you know, like if you, if you, if people know me in grade school and they'd be like, I remember you. And they probably have the gist of my personality. Like, oh yeah, you're, I remember you when you were that age and you're the same kind of thing. But then there's this um, idea of situational. So yes, I might score on a test right smack in the middle of introversion, extroversion, but on the introverted side, 
But most people that meet me say, no, no way, you are totally extroverted. Well, in the situations you've seen me in, I behave extroverted. Maybe I learned to behave that way, whatever it is, but I don't score that way on a test. So maybe it's because of certain situations, I project certain parts of me. And how is that related to masking? So I'm thinking about a quote actually from a participant in a recent study that we did, um, which is, is about the experience of intimate partner violence. But if quite a few people talked about how it, you know, interacted with masking um, and with identity management. And, and one of the participants said, you know, I used to be who whoever I was expected to be. And I think I would be unrecognizable to the people who really knew me. And it just makes me think about that, that idea that, you know, that there are maybe some people who have more of an idea who you who you are and have seen you for you and then people who never really get to see that um and how much you might change depending on that context so there might be kind of those core aspects of you and things like your values um that might form kind of you know how you think about your personality but then other things which might be more or less tangential depending on on the kind of person you are that you may be yeah, that might change from situation to situation. This is the, so this is what I'm fascinated in with regards to like identity and autistic people. Like we know so little about autistic identity and about identity as a concept among autistic people. Like we have years and years of social psychological research, but we have none of that for autistic people. Like there's just, there's very little research looking at how we conceptualize ourselves um, and how we think about who we are as people. And that's something we we have been working on for the past couple of years. Like we've been collecting like interviews around this and how people describe themselves, you know, whether they feel like they can be authentic. Um, and it's something I think we need a lot more of before we really delve into to the finer details of masking. Because if we don't know who people are generally from context to context, then then how can we really understand how that might be suppressed? Like I, I think we need that understanding of contextual change before we can really understand masking itself. And it was this that we were so frustrated with as well in terms of the the narrative that's been traditionally out there for the kind of first five, six, seven years around kind of what autistic masking is in that it's so focused on someone just being in a social environment and then coming out of it again. You know, not autistic, autistic, not autistic, autistic. It's it's really is that simplistic. Um, and a lot of it is also around, particularly around um, the idea around compensation, that you're actually, that, that it's an attempt to compensate for your lack of normal, that from your lack of being neurotypical. And that's a really arrogant and hubristic viewpoint to take from a, and that's coming from a neurotypical perspective, that kind of, that's where that idea has come from, you know, that that autistic people are so desperate to be like you, and why shouldn't they want to be like us? Because we're great, aren't we, as neurotypical people? That's really the narrative that's being there. It's obviously not, not explicit, but that's the implicit narrative there, that, that we centre neurotypicalism as being the right way to be. And of course, everybody would want to be the right way, wouldn't they? Without thinking that there are other right ways to be as well. And it, it, when Amy was talking there, it's making me think about even what is our understanding of what authenticity is, because that's going to mean different things to different people. Even the understanding of that word is going to be different for different people. So there's so much there that we're just really just, we've been scraping at the surface and, and it's, we need to be monotropic about it, Daria, and we need to, we need to really hone in on it and focus in on it and dig deep into it because 
within that meaning within that depth that's where the real answers are and that's that's where we need to kind of the direction we need to go and at the minute it's been very polytropic and just skimming across the surface well i'm thinking uh, of a couple of things first of all that when i think about people who i perceive as authentic it's more of that trait definition where you know you can use their traits to predict their future behaviors because that's how they are and then when i think about other people who you know i i think i tend to be a bit of a chameleon because i'm a certain way professionally i'm a certain way with friends i'm a certain way with family and overall i might be roughly the same but but there's definitely different things and in that sense i think of more state concept state concepts where the behaviors can be controlled by manipulating the situation and so that goes to kieran's point about what is authenticity because if i'm manipulated to behave in a certain way in one environment do i even know if i'm being authentic and maybe i think i am but then um you know I, you brought up um intimate partner relationships like think about Every time someone, you know, you might have a long-term relationship and then you have a new long-term relationship and all of a sudden the ways that you thought you were, you're totally different and you feel all of a sudden you can feel like you're more yourself with a new person and you're like, wait, was I ever myself in that last relationship? So even understanding your own authenticity and knowing when you mask is, is so hard to figure out as we alluded to in the beginning. And so... I always thought of it personally in studying personality psychology that yes, you can have behaviors manipulated by the situation, but there's still going to be some trait aspect. So for instance, if I have to confront, I'm renting a place, I have to confront my landlord about the fact that they didn't fix the leak in my apartment or whatever. Um, and there's me and my roommate and we both need to do the same thing, how confrontational can we each be when we're put to the test and this person's saying no? And so to me, that's traits. <laughs> and so it, it's it's hard to figure out. Um, I think I'm just elaborating on why you said it's so hard to figure out what masking is. <laughs> I think that's really interesting. And I think that, to be honest, I think that's where a lot of people, like there's a big source of distress around particularly like with late identification and and that sense of like not knowing who you are because I think maybe for a lot of people we have experienced those really big switches from like one context to another one relationship to another and thinking about like which parts of yourself what was that me like is that authentic and also how that interacts with maybe things like alexithymia and delayed processing so not really fully understanding how you felt about a situation until you're out of it and maybe how that changed you at the time. I think all of that can also feed into that sense of like not really knowing who you are. Um, but I like the way you talk about the traits. And I think for some people, that's something that it can maybe help you make a little bit more sense of like, well, maybe I don't know what I'm like from state to state. And maybe that changes quite a lot. But I know that these are kind of the core traits that I have. And though the way in which I express those might change or who I let see those things might change that you kind of have an understanding of, of what your values are and, and what the kind of core things that maybe make up you are. 
it might seem like I'm saying the same thing over and over, but I really want listeners who, you know, are new to this concept to really think about this. Like I can imagine some listeners saying, yeah, how is that different from anything? Like when you first start dating a person, of course, you're going to present your best self and maybe you're going to do things that you would never do later in the future. What is, and I know we've covered this and you cover it extensively in your book, but for the people that are listening, like, I really want to really get at why it's so essential to mask and how damaging it can be for autistic people specifically versus a neurotypical person who might also be masking in situations or as you called it, uh, context shifting and other types of things that isn't really masking. Like, can you, can you sort of get at that core of why it's very different for autistic people? I think, um, I think there's, there's, there's two kind of types of answers here. And the second one I'm going to go on to is intersectionality, which is takes it to a whole, a whole nother level. Um, particularly around um, people who aren't white and live in predominantly white realms. Um, but the first kind of level for that is is safety um, in, in lots of ways. When you are an autistic person, other people, even if you don't know that you're autistic and other people don't know that you're autistic, you are still being perceived through a lens of what everybody doesn't know is a lens of, of autism, So, which sets you up to be stigmatized and pathologized and corrected and all sorts of things in in lots and lots of different ways across really every aspect of who you are as a person i amy's probably sick of me reading off this list but it's like how we think how we feel how we move how we act how we sleep how we learn how we communicate how we socialize all of like every how we play every possible way that you can exist is subjected in some way to some level of invalidation um, correction, someone telling you you're doing it wrong or, and that's not always um, kind of explicit in terms of someone comes up to me and says, stop doing that. Sometimes that does happen and does happen a lot, but also there's that kind of subtle microaggression kind of, you don't really need that, do you? You shouldn't really be feeling that. And you can't possibly be feeling that way. Like your emotional states are wrong. How you respond to things are wrong. Your behavior in every situation is deemed as wrong. So when, and then obviously we move into systems like school systems, main normative mainstream school systems and the workplace as we get older, where there are all of these structural rules that exist that are absolutely arbitrary and are based on one group of people's experiences who happen to be the majority. And a lot of those experiences are really contextual. They change geographically, culturally, even from house to house, they might change. So, but yet we have all of this kind of set in stone around us, which are things which are neurotypical for want of a better word and are easily leaned into by neurotypical people because they're created by neurotypical people and that, that way of processing and thinking. And when you're autistic, the stuff that we need and the stuff that we create isn't valued. There's no value to it at all. It's actually dismissed or invalidated. So, so that's that first level of why you need safety, why you need to kind of respond to the environments that you're in, the way that you're treated, the way that you perceive that you're treated as well when you go into new environments based on your experience, that projecting acceptability again. I've been treated like this historically, so therefore I'm just going to be treated like that again. Usually you're right nine times out of ten, and it's a bit of a shock when you're not, and then you don't know what to do with it. <laughs> But then on top of that, 
there's that extra level of intersectional kind of safety that's needed. So, so for example, you live in North America, you live in maybe the better part of North America where people aren't likely to shoot you on a street corner as much. Um, if you are a black or brown autistic person existing in the United States right now, then the chances of you being shot are greatly increased if you act in any way which is could be deemed as abnormal, non-neurotypical, um, you know, that, that just increases the risk to you. So those risk factors are, are predominantly greater. Um, but the same with other people in, in different other different contexts intersectionally, people who are gay or queer, um, people who are um, have different gender identities, you know, all of those things are feeding into this. So there are autistic people who are at greater risk of harm for being autistic and inclusive of all the other identity, other things that make up their identities intersectional, intersectionally as well. Sorry, big words, and I'm stumbling over. It's late at night here, and um, so, uh, so yeah, so there's there's those kind of two levels where, as a common and garden autistic person, you are subject to harm, stigma, mistreatment, invalidation. Some of it witting, some of it, a lot of it unwitting, but it still happens. And then on top of that, if you have an intersectional experience which crosses other identities or marginalised identities, then you are more likely to be at greater risk of those things and also maybe physical harm as well. So that's why it's important. It's it's something that keeps us safe. So it is a useful tool on the one hand, but the cost of it is enormous in terms of psychology, your emotional strength, you know, your emotional ability, your physicalness, well-being as well across every domain of your life, it can have a major negative impact too when you're not in control of it and it's in control of you or the, the situation is in control of you. And and also when you're in a particular situation and you feel like you have to be a certain way and it's chronic, like you said, it takes its toll over time, um, But but then you get to the point where I know you've said in a past podcast, you might not even know anymore. It's like, it's subconscious at that point. You're just doing it automatically out of a sense of safety. It's a, it's a response to an accumulation of things over a period of time. Sometimes there can be big, like if you look at it through a trauma lens, sometimes there are big things that can happen that change who you are fundamentally and you, you, you respond to that trauma and that changes you with every, within every situation that you go in. But sometimes there's an accumulation of, is there a better word than smaller, Amy? I hate saying the word smaller when we're talking about trauma because there's really no such thing, is there? But you, you know what I mean? There, there may be it's things that might be deemed, yeah, that accumulative of that accumulative kind of growth of the, the I'm still using the word smaller, that accumulative growth of, of other things which might not be big, huge PTSD inducing things, but grow over time and impact you over time that you unconsciously respond to and therefore continue to unconsciously respond to. And then it becomes a habit. It can, becomes ingrained in you to respond in that way. Yeah, and I think that when autistics, as maybe some of the ones who have been diagnosed later, especially over age 20, suddenly meet other autistics and they're like, huh, whoa, okay, I'm so comfortable now. And then you're like, all these light bulbs, ding, 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 like, wait a second, I do that too, I do that. Um, I, I didn't tell anyone I did that before because it's weird, but oh, all these people do the same thing as me. like the three of us could probably sit here and list off all kinds of things I've done throughout my whole life that like my friends just never did, but I did. Um, 
And so you just have this extra feeling of comfort and it, you know, that whole um, idea of adaptability, like how adaptable are people to different situations? Maybe you feel like there's so many factors, there's so many variables, but you know, not only your traits, how adaptable can this person be to new situations, but your experiences, your traumas. I think they use little T and big T for traumas like the, I, I isn't it C it's like PTSD C and PTSD. C, P, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And all of those things. So like someone would give an example and they'd say, well, that's not that traumatic. Um, well, over time, if, you know, people, you know, uh, shunned you in these certain situations over and over, like, like you said, the accumulation of that. And then that might make you be less adaptable than you might naturally automatically be. And then, um, over time, over time. And also with age, maybe people are less adaptable as they get older in general, whether you're neurotypical or autistic or, or something else, like you just, get to that point in your life where I'm too tired to just try so hard. I'm just going to be myself. <laughs> so there's like all so many variables thrown in there. Um, and I guess in the pie in the sky ideal, we want an environment where everybody can feel like they're accepted for who they are. And, and I think we're seeing that shift in society right now, where this is like people saying, I can be who I am. And this backlash of no, you're weird or you're this or you're that you, you can't be like that, like decide who you are, stop pretending and this whole like extremes. And hopefully we're going to meet somewhere in the middle where people can understand each other's sides. And I mean, that's just sort of the pie in the sky dream, but figuring out all the steps to get there. I think you guys are at that beginning of like Kieran said, there's so much more research to do to figure out like, what does this look like? And, and what is the experience of people when they do get in that environment where like, ah, oh, okay, I don't have to mask anymore. And, and would you even know how to, because maybe if you don't have to, you still feel like you need to, because that's what you learned to be safe. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think that's, I mean, that's one of the things we do talk about is like, you know, in order for autistic people to, to be themselves in order for people to express more of a degree of authenticity, we need to dismantle all of the other things that prevent people from being themselves. Like, you know, it's all well and good saying we'll, we'll push for autism acceptance, but without, you know, dealing with other forms of ableism, with racism, with transphobia and, and homophobia, like it doesn't really matter because people still aren't going to be able to be their authentic selves without those things also being dealt with. Um, and so it's that thing of understanding like how multifaceted people's identities are and that all of those things shape who we are. And like autism is, is one aspect of that. For some people, it might be a huge, huge aspect of it. And for other people, it, it might be lesser because other bits of their identities are more stigmatized or, you know, are, are really central um, to who they thought themselves to be for their entire lives. And so I think it's understanding kind of like what we need to do, but also recognizing that like, the pie in the sky idea is is it is like we need to change society to be overall more inclusive um which is which is just a little undertaking like just a little one <laughs> especially when we hear um you know the influence of cultures like certain 
places in the world where you you can barely even be a woman, let alone yeah. gay, let alone trans, let alone, you know, um, a different race or a different religion. Yeah. Or, so it's scary. Um, the, the, I was going to ask Kieran for you to give an example of what you meant by invalidations growing up. And I just thought of, of one, which may or may not be um, the best example. So maybe you can give more of, you know, hearing, I, I've heard various podcasts where women say that they were in the hospital or something. And then if the staff found in the United States, and if the staff found out that they were an autistic mother, all of a sudden, what they say doesn't matter because, oh, they're autistic. They, they're like mentally inca like incapable of being able to raise their children or whatever. So is that an example of what you mean by being invalidated? I think you meant more like different little behaviors and that's, stuff. But that's, that's, that's a big, uh, I would call that a big invalidation. Um, uh, that's looking at someone through a lens of incompetence because of the stigmatized view that you hold. Um, but what I'm talking about does include those things, but also brings it right down to little tiny things. Um, I don't know if I've said this to you before, but I had a, um, a client a while back um, who talked about their daughter who bounced all the time. They had like a mini, uh, like an exercise trampoline in their living room and they bounce and bounce and bounce and bounce constantly. And every time the grandma came over, she would say things like, oh, you're not doing that again, are you? And, oh, then you're going to make me feel ill if you keep bouncing on that thing. And so grandma wasn't being, I mean, she was being negative and probably deliberately, but it was more of a kind of a casual offhand comment that was repeated enough times. And you can probably see where I'm going with this. The girl eventually stopped bouncing. And it was only, only later that, that through conversations with mom, it was like, like really digging into why did you stop bouncing? Because grandma kept saying things so that, that, that poor grandma, I'm really being pardon grandma, but you know, it, it's, it's those little tiny things that build up over time that stop you from doing it. Why did why did the girl dance? Because she uh, bounced, sorry, because she was regulating and she enjoyed it. Two things there. And I know Amy does aerial and that's, you know, if someone, someone had said to Amy, why are you swinging from that rope again constantly to you? Eventually you will probably feel quite bad about it and perceive it in a quite negative way. And you may eventually stop doing that thing. And that's something that Amy feels good about, but eventually it's become a negative thing in Amy's life. So Amy stops doing it then. That's what that level of kind of, it's almost like a, a kind of a gaslighting in a way based on someone else's perceptions of what other people should be doing. Probably from grandma's perspective, it was that child's kind of being naughty. They're not being quiet. They're not doing what they're told. They're not, they're not doing the homework or, or, or whatever. So when you think about a structure like school, which institutionalizes those narratives of you can only do things in a certain way. You can only learn in a certain way. You have to learn by sitting still, by sitting on the floor, having your legs crossed, keeping your hands in your lap, not shouting out the answer. It's a very controlled environment. And if that's not your natural native environment, what that what is that going to feel like? And that's not just mainstream school. That happens in special schools as well. That element of control and management of what's deemed, you know, they talk, they use the word behavior. When actual facts, they're not talking about behavior. They're talking about the things a child does that they don't like based on an arbitrary idea of what that child should be doing. That's not behavior at all. Behavior is anything. So, so yeah, so it's that, that, that kind of 
gaslighting over the things that you do, the way that you speak, what I was talking about earlier, that big long list, um, and even just offhand comments heard enough can cause major redirections or suppressions or projections or changes in your behavior. And that's something that I didn't mention at the beginning was another thing that frustrated us was that this is very much the masking narrative has traditionally been very much around a kind of, I'm going to use that awful phrase of high functioning autistic people, which excluded non-speaking autistics, autistic people with intellectual learning disabilities, autistic people who have physical disabilities. You know, it's excluded all those people. And we're talking about human behaviors here. So when we exclude certain types of humans from those human behaviors, what are we really saying? We're saying you're not quite human enough. You're not a fully functioning human. It's yeah, it's so problematic. And it's all based on these perceptions of arbitrary social ideas of what we should be doing and how we should be behaving. It, an example jumped into my head immediately when you were talking about that. My son talks a lot. So do I. Um, from the moment he wakes up till the time he goes to bed, he's talking. And if I pick him up from school, he'll we'll get home and he'll he'll, you know, he'll ask me who's your favorite toad? What's your favorite uh, Mario character? Mama, what color? Blah, blah, blah. Do you like? And just like nonstop, 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 nonstop. And he also, like his mom, has a very loud voice. So when he talks, his volume is super loud. So if we're walking in the store, he's saying, oh, the Lego's over there. I'm going to go get the set. Blah, 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 blah. You know, and, and talking very loud and like people, and like, shh, shh, shh. It was an innocent comment, but my mom joked and said, does he have a volume button <laughs> like to turn down the volume? So those kinds of things said over time, he's very loud. Like I, I am no, my dad said about me, you're going to grow up to be a microphone. And he said it in a loving way, but he meant like, I'm a really loud kid and my voice is booming. And so like, I've taken on that identity. I'm a loud person and that's not really a positive thing. <laughs> so now my son has that happening too. So that is the type of thing you mean. And yeah. although that might be not a super capital T trauma, it's a type of thing that when there's a bunch of those, like, oh, when you get excited, you shouldn't be flapping your hands and jumping up and down like my son does. And, oh, you shouldn't be, you know, whatever things that he does, if he's internalizing that bit by bit, um, even with an accepting, loving mom who's trying to be the advocate for him, even putting him in a schools where I'm making sure that people see the best in him, all of that, he's still going to get that from being yeah. in society. And he's all humans are subjected to that as well. That's mm -hmm. not that's not just an autistic thing. But when we're talking about, like I said earlier, someone who is pathologized, stigmatized, up for correction across so many aspects of who they are continuously, not all children are subjected to that level of of kind of that that microaggression, that invalidation, that that. And of course, we're going to respond to that. And that's that's again something that's really it made me angry over the last years around kind of how that superficial masking narrative has been looked at it's about you know like autistic people want to be neurotypical and they want to fit in and they want to do this and it's no there's no choice here this this is not these are not choice behaviors this is someone who's been subjected to repeated trauma over the course of their life and have unconsciously responded to that like any human being would 
But, you know, you know, the perception has always been that autistic people have evolved in vacuums. We don't evolve in response to other people. We just manifest as autistic children and then are automatically the way that we are forever. And nothing nothing interacts with that to change that. And of course, that's rubbish because we're human beings and we're soaking up the environments that we're in and responding to those environments. And if they're predominantly negative, then what's that? What's the outlook of the, the outcome of that going to be? Well, just even parents absorb that. So if you're hearing, like we talked about the false autism narrative in the Redefining the Autism Narrative podcast with Virginia, part one and two, which I'll put links to in the blog post today, um, parents are internalizing that and then they are contributing to that because they feel like, and, and I experienced this totally because I only have one child. And so you assume that, oh, everything they do that's like a little bit scary or different must be because they're autistic. And then I talk to so-and-so and so-and-so friend and say, oh yeah, my kid does that all the time. My, that has nothing to do with autism. What are you talking about? Like my son did that all the time. And oh, well, yeah, that's normal. And then you start to realize like, wait a second, that's not an autistic trait. That's just a kid being a kid. Human trait, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's that the level of policing that autistic kids are subjected to. Um, and then that level of everything gets blamed on the autism yes. is just so problematic, absolutely so problematic. And parents of autistic children, particularly those that are new to the, this narrative, lots lots of lots of parents, you know, again, parents are perceived through that static lens like autistic children are, that they never change. Um, parents do change as well. Parents learn to do things differently and learn to support their children in better ways. And there's there's lots lots of avenues that you can you can take to do that. But I think, again, that narrative of this is another narrative of stigma that, that parents become self-stigmatized and also inherit a stigmatized narrative as well. And those those two things just keep circling back on each other and get worse and worse and worse quite often. And then you have something like which we've talked about before, like an intervention like ABA or whatever that comes in and says, we can make your child like all the other children. Of course, that's going to appeal to people because they've been sold the narrative that their children are broken. That's what stigma does. And then people profit off the back of it. I think the other thing I would say, like that makes it so hard with these issues, particularly around parents and with around things like clashing needs. Cause I'm thinking about like, you know, if you have got a kid who wants to talk and talk and talk and talk all the time, you can't listen and listen and listen all the time. And like, and so it's, it's working around, I think, ways to recognize your own needs and be able to tell someone like, Oh, like I've had a really long day. Um, and I, can we just like can we put can we put a pin in that one or let's talk for this long and then shift it on like whilst also being able to advocate for yourself right because it's like being able to find a way to to support kids in not feeling shamed for the things that make them them whilst also recognizing that you can be yourself but that doesn't mean that you can always do exactly what you want all of the time and that other people don't also get to like express some sort of boundary or difference. And I think those things are so hard to navigate. Um, when you have someone who feels like they spend their entire lives being shamed for everything that they do and invalidated for everything that they do, like those things that should be within a family, like a funny joke and just like you kind of ripping each other a little bit. Cause that's what families are like um, that on its own done in like a kind way isn't a problem I think it's all of the other things that come into that that then also make people think oh well maybe that was serious or or maybe I should stop doing this 
that's where like it it becomes more of an issue does that make sense yeah uh, and I don't know if this is exactly related but what popped into my head was that when you have these you know um assumptions that society has out there and these narratives when you come down to it like I forget I think it was the comedian Sarah Silverman so is that her name Silverman um she like did this show where she went and like interviewed hardcore Republicans in Texas and she's a Jewish Democrat woman from the Northeast and she was trying to show that like guess what people are people and we can get along and we can find a common ground and so I remember um years and years before I had children um I worked with a a, a guy who was my age but he had cerebral palsy and I was sort of like an assistant for him just not for very long, but I got to accompany him to this conference where he used an AAC device to speak. And it was hilarious because a lady came up to me after and said, is that really his voice? And I was like, um, I had to be very polite and say, no, that was his device, but it's hilarious that you thought that was his voice. But anyway, that's an aside. Um, he was saying how, like, if you don't meet anybody who, if you ever met anyone who had a disability, like, you don't know, you make assumptions, right? And so by giving these talks and whatever and getting to know the person, so maybe, you know, I always thought it's great to be able to have people meet autistic people and get to interact with them. And then everybody seems to know somebody who has a son or a daughter or a cousin meeting somebody and understanding like, oh yeah, my um, neighbor's nephew comes over all the time and he's autistic and he does this and you can see who the person is and you can see what they love and then thinking about that instead of that societal narrative that almost forces you to discriminate when you don't even really like people if you get down to it and you just meet them and you get to see people for who they are it's like when we put people in schools all of a sudden everybody feels like they have to follow the school rules and now we have to be this way and we can't allow this but if it was just the teacher and the child, you would hope that the teacher can see the parts of the child that shine. And um, I mean, that's what I hope we do in DIR and, you know, um, DIR floor time, developmental, individual differences, relationship based. We talk about that first capacity of the D in development is regulation, like having to be in a place where you feel safe and you do that through the relationship of another person and, and that regulation and relationship maybe are those situational factors or the nurture that can impact someone's individual differences, which is the I in the model. So those, you know, it doesn't have to be personality traits, but factors like your family structure, like Kieran named, like all of the different factors, and then trying to adjust those other factors to make the environment more friendly. Did that flow into anything that you can think of from the book that we haven't talked about? Probably the ending in terms of like fostering authenticity and, and what that looks like and <clears throat> whose responsibility is it to change? And that's 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 kind of where we end the book at in terms of shifting the responsibility away from autistic people who are doing all of the work currently, um, swimming against this tide of stigma. Um 
um, trying to trying to be acceptable for other people when in actual fact it's other people that control that narrative. So that's that's kind of where that kind of took me in terms of how do we change the environments, who's responsible for that, and where does the understanding of what that change looks like come from as well. And and I hope that's what we're doing at the International Council on Development and Learning, because even people that have learned DI or floor time learned it originally in a medical model kind of way, even though Dr. Greenspan was much more ahead of his colleagues in acknowledging individual differences and things like that. But there are still people who practice DIR in more of a way of we're doing an intervention kind of thing. And then there's a lot of other people who really get it like they get everything you're saying Karen and they're they're working like Virginia Spielman for for example like she's a DIR uh person and, and she gets it and so there's you know there's such um such a a varied way of applying all of these things and it's all individualized depending on who it is but you guys are doing the important work of really naming what's out there, naming what's happening and trying to get a common understanding so that people aren't making these biases and having the stigma, which I think is amazing. So um, I'm just going to share my screen for a second and show the book. This is at Kieran Rose's website, theautisticadvocate.com slash autistic dash masking dash book. And you could also just go to his website and click on the um, link that says about the book. And here he has the subtitle, Understanding the Identity Management and the Role of Stigma. And you can order a copy here. I think it's also available on Amazon and other places. And um, can you get it in audio? Not, Not yet. yet. I mean, but we I have, have spoken about it. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> We have plans to do it, so it's uh, it's available as uh, as an ebook, um, and it's available in uh, paper copy now everywhere. I think now um, it's been out in the UK for a few months, um, but next year, well, it was supposed to be the end of this year, but I think it's going to be next year now that we we have plans to sit down and record us reading it. So yeah, I will put links to this and the podcasts I done with Kieran and other resources at the blog post at affectautism.com under masking. You can search masking. Well, I cannot wait to read it and dive in and maybe we'll have a part two. Um, I'm going to, you know, make my notes of what I learned from it, but wouldn't it be awesome to have part of that in your groups? Um, Kieran does uh, a membership where groups meet regularly and have you done that yet where everybody reads the book and sort of shares their experiences and learnings from it? Because it would be what I take out of it is going to be very different from what someone else in a different country in a different demographic is going to take out of it. And so that would be interesting to, to do sometimes. That's, that's, actually, that'll be a nice little uh, taster of, of things to come. So you just give me a really good idea, Darius. I'm going to write that down. But as we were getting right up, probably two weeks before we had to hand it in, and then post so much good research came out that we could have included and it was actually quite painful kind of like that that sending it in because it was like well but there's this and there's that and we haven't it could have we could have if we hadn't had that pressure that deadline it would have just been endless it would have been a a kind of living document that just went on forever um and that's (laughs) the frustration it can be on your website (laughs) <laughs> well thank you so much for doing the legwork that you guys did and and getting that much done that can then be a platform 
from which other people bounce off of and more research comes and it's just i mean i see it just from even just scrolling on the the affect autism we chose play twitter feed i see all the stuff coming out just so much new research so many more perspectives so many more neurodiversity affirming services for autistic children and parents and everything just it's it's just exploding so it's super exciting to be witnessing all of this and thank you guys for doing this work and for the book thank you both so much i really appreciate you, you being on the podcast and Pleasure. having this discussion thanks a lot until next time here's to choosing play and experiencing joy every day.